0: Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Good evening, and welcome to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard this evening. One of the powerful features of The Conspiracy Show that distinguishes us from other radio is the capacity and need that we have to look at the world and the planet and even beyond from totally different perspectives. Perspectives you will not hear on other radio. Raising levels of awareness and providing alternate perspectives to understanding our world is something we take very, very seriously because, as you're well aware, our world is becoming more and more complex each day. No matter what the topic, you can be assured we present different sets of answers to questions we ask ourselves about the world we live in, its history, its current state, and even its future. In our program tonight, we venture into this new world of perspectives and heightened levels of awareness. Tonight, we're looking at Christmas and raising our level of awareness of Christmas. Have we lost or forgotten the meaning of Christmas? What are its origins, its traditions, and the more subtle aspects of this 2,000-year-old occurrence? It began in Judea as one thing, a baby born in a stable among animals, this singular event altered the fate of humanity and to this day remains a focal point for Christians and humanity itself. However, over time, it has morphed into something else. As something else, a, a yearly multi-million dollar economic binge based on reindeer flying at the beck and call of a large man in a red suit along with gluttonous excesses of turkey, ham and shopping malls. It would become somehow distracted from the origins of Christmas. Have we forgotten the true Christmas story? To help us unravel some of these really difficult questions about the essence of Christmas, our guest tonight, Father Robert Geis, an expert in scripture, will help us along that journey. Robert Geis is a prelate, a Protossian cellus in the Eastern Orthodox Church. He has published a number of books on philosophy and theology, as well as scripture. His work on the resurrection in the National Catholic Herald is cited as a remarkable book. His work on immortality received high marks in the Philosophic Journal, The Review of Metaphysics. He has also written and published one of the most definitive works on papal authority, Peter and Linus, The Question of Papal Infallibility. Father Geis has just finished a 424-page book entitled The Life of Christ, which will come out Early next year, it is published by Rowan and Littlefield. We welcome Father Robert Geis from his home in Long Island, New York. Father Geis, welcome to the Conspiracy Show.
1: Thank you for your hospitality and kindness and courtesy and having me on. Uh, you are right about the reality of Christmas. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to raise our awareness level to realities beyond the four elements, so to speak. Uh, those that your programs always attempt to bring about that presence of mind. So Christmas, as you noted, is an appropriate topic considered from this viewpoint. Uh, tonight, to reach that, uh, level of awareness, a few perhaps seemingly dense items have to be dealt with, uh, which currently influence our culture. I personally consider Christmas to be a miracle and it's the miracle of the Incarnation in history. Today, miracles are scoffed at, uh, denied in the academic world, although when someone is healed healed of cancer who is pronounced terminal, that scoff at the the notion of miracle uh, may be uh, disbanded with. The Scottish thinker Hume uh, that began the objection to miracles in a pronounced way in a number of respects. Uh, contemporary secularism derives from his writings, the refusal to acknowledge the presence of something transcendent beyond our current everyday activity. You had argued nature was a closed system in his denial of the miraculous. The problem with that is that his argument is what... Next to question. I'll be very uh, precise on this for the listener, because it's very important for him as we try to raise our level of awareness of uh, reality. The denial of miracles in Hume is a fallacy of reasoning because he's already assuming that nature is a closed system, which he needs to prove. You are saying that you have an argument which will prove something, but what you are really doing is uh, setting something forth that poses as a proof, but it's not. You know, that is, already loaded the dice. By saying nature is a closed system, you already have ruled out that miracles, divine intervention from outside nature can occur. But first you have to demonstrate that nature is a closed system. But you can't. Thus you have not demonstrated that miracles cannot occur. Mm
2: -hmm. This
1: line of reasoning, which is called the Enlightenment, has penetrated much thought today and is a line of reasoning to which many academics whom I have encountered and study and write about in my book, Life of Christ. They have made recourse to this line of reasoning. But I think that we've begun to show that it is something which is fallacious in itself. But let me get something which is even simpler to your listener. Mm -hmm. You said in his denial of miracles that proof of miracles requires extraordinary proof. He writes that in his work on miracles, which is part of his treatise of human nature. But the only thing he admits that would be extraordinary is a miracle. So he already rules out the possibility of miracles by saying they require extraordinary proof. It's a sleight of hand to the person who's not really concentrating on this powerful force, David Hume, he may just accept Hume's statement without pondering the fallacy that we just noted in Hume. Mm-hmm. So the miraculous does have the possibility of occurrence. It tried to be ruled out by a line of reasoning, which began with Hume and has penetrated our current-day thinking to the denial of the divine in history. But I think if you ponder that Hume's work is not what he pretended that it was, we have opened the door to the acceptance of miracles in our attempt in this program to raise the level of awareness that people should have in the everyday life that they conduct. Now, Christmas is the incarnation, but it's an incarnation born of a virgin. Is that a miracle? Well, uh, Coming to birth does not occur within the natural order of human procreation by a virgin. It, therefore, is a miracle. It has operated outside the normal method of procreation. The virginity of Mary, the virgin birth, has been ruled out as possible by those who have argued against miracles. But their argument, we just saw, has no strength. Hume lived, uh, Victor, in, uh, as I know a little deeper, in the, in the assumed Newtonian ironclad laws of cause and effect. You remember Isaac Newton?
0: Of course, the, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. God
1: is a watchmaker. Mm-hmm. Is the, the universe is set forth. Uh, he, he winds it up, and then he just lets it go. In, in theology, God not only starts the world, but he must conserve it. He's present at every moment, because that's how it stays in existence. Without his conservation of the world, of the universe, the universe would seek to exist. That's the kind of world that you lived in, this Newtonian ironclad law of cause and effect. That's his nature is a closed system uh, assumption. And that's all it is, is an assumption. And what's ironic, Victor, is now quantum mechanics has ruled out this Newtonian universe, you're very, very familiar with that, probably more so than I am, mm-hmm. given what your uh, programs have in the past discussed. But this this, this quantum mechanics world further weakens an already discredited Hume argument against the miraculous, you see?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Let, me, let me say one point about the miraculous. I brought it up before. Take someone terminally ill with cancer who suddenly recovers, is cured. Does that mean that nature's laws were changed? That's what Jung would tell you. No. One can argue new conditions were entered into, say, millions of new healthy cells under which nature in that person will now function. No laws were changed. Only a new condition was introduced into the body under which those laws of nature would now function. Ask anybody who's been cured of cancer when he was told he was terminally ill. Uh... How do we account for that? Is it possible that maybe a miracle entered into that person's life? How does one change so subtly? It's with a set of new conditions. Who introduced that new set of conditions? Mm -hmm. You didn't change any laws of nature, you just changed the environment in which nature's laws are operating. This is another argument against the denial of the miraculous, which uh, which has significance in our discussion, because the, virgin, uh, the the incarnation, being born of a virgin, is a miracle, and that's what Christmas is. It is a miraculous event. Now, uh, it's interesting to me uh, in reading uh, the scriptures, uh, some people today, some uh, writers, populists, say that uh, the term that was used for Mary being prophesied as a virgin in Isaiah 7.14 that term is ha'alma. That's the Hebrew term. And they have tried to argue, and I'm thinking of Spong, the, uh, the Episcopalian uh, uh, bishop. Uh, he has gone to say that this term does not mean what we normally mean it to mean, namely, a woman who has not known man.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The term ha'alma is used in the Old Testament only ten times. And in each instance, if you do the lexical work, and people can read my book, uh, I note this in my book, Life of Christ, in the chapter from the beginning, if you do the lexical work, you see that it only applies to a woman who has not known man. Sometimes other critics have tried to argue that the term betula, which is another Hebrew term, they've tried to throw that in as meaning someone who has not known man, and thus, Alma, this term in Isaiah, the term is A-L-M-A-H, is not a specific term. However, again, lexical scrutiny, which the exegete must undertake, disproves this claim. Either that or it shows the absence of a knowledge of Hebrew on part of the exegete. So, there were claims that the term Parthenos, to go one step further, was not an adequate Greek translation in the Septuagint for the term the Gospels used to describe Mary as a virgin, who a, a woman who is not known man. The, these uh, arguments against that term Parthenos, lexical scrutiny again disproves. Why is this important? Because we're talking about Christmas as a miracle, and to be born of a virgin is a miracle. And to say that uh, the miracles don't happen. Of course you're going to say instantly, well, the virgin birth story is nonsense. the Christmas story is nonsense. Mm-hmm. But at raising the level of awareness of the listener here, we've already shown that the arguments against miracles, by the way, Hume's arguments are the most powerful. Uh, ask any philosopher, ask any theologian. Uh, they will tell you that was the breaking point where the miraculous started coming into suspicion. Once you have been able to show that you's arguments are not powerful, we have opened awareness to a new line of reality. And one of those lines I maintain is the birth of Christ, uh, which was of a virgin. You
0: see? I I guess...
1: When
0: you study that... I was just going to say, say, Robert, taking off on that whole idea of of a miracle, a lot of times what happens, uh, and I guess uh, we've sort of fallen in into that state in, in the secular world where we look at it, an incident like Christmas and all of the uh, the mythos surrounding it, we, we, we tend to categorize it as a myth. And I know that you've, you've done a lot of work in understanding the work of, of St. Luke and the Gospels about how he portrayed uh, the actual event itself. So what can you tell us about St. Luke and the way he, he portrayed it in, in terms of uh, debunking the idea that it was a myth? Well, uh,
1: so it's a good point. Uh, if you read the beginning of St. Luke's Gospel, uh, he says that what he's setting down is with accuracy. It's right there in uh, the first four verses. He's setting down with accuracy and in good order everything that he's been told. One does not set down accurately inaccurate items. One doesn't make, take pains to tell the reader, I'm setting down accurately and in good order what has been relayed to me? Well, all of it, a myth is not something that's accurate. A myth is not something that is uh, with precision. Uh, you know, your listeners know what a myth is. So the first thing that comes to mind is why does St. Luke say something like this? Mm-hmm. Why is St. Luke recognized by historians as one of the greatest historians that ever lived? The great British historian A. N. Sherwin White has called him one of the top three historians that have ever lived. Well, historians don't write myths. Most people don't know that St. Luke has been identified as one of the greatest historians that ever lived. Most people may not be aware that he says that what he is setting down, uh, he is setting down with with accuracy. The Greek word is aquipos, Mm -hmm. and in good order. So that makes you wonder, is St. Luke writing history, or is he writing a myth? Uh, well, his statements don't make you wonder that you wonder why do people say what he is writing down is a myth?
0: Uh, right. The right. other
1: interesting thing. About yeah, before
0: we go, on, Robert, before we go on there, let's let's take a break, uh, okay. and we, we have to take a small short break. Uh, we're talking to Father Robert Geis uh, from his home in Long Island, New York, and we're trying to look at uh, the meaning and essence of Christmas. Uh, my name is Victor Vigiani, and this is the Conspiracy Show. You stay right where you are. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740. Welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Obviously, Richard is not here this evening. He's taking a well-earned rest, and I'm sitting here in the big chair, and we are talking with uh, scripture uh, expert, Father Robert Geis from his home in Long Island, New York, and we've just been talking about different aspects of the history of Christmas and trying to put together some ideas about uh, the the actual essence of what Christmas is and how we've reached an understanding today that might be a little bit less accurate uh, than according to Scripture. Um, Robert, you were talking just before the break about Saint Luke, but I, I'd like to, to move into the the whole idea of the story of the Magi and the star of the East. And I know there's a whole uh, you know different line of thinking about who the Magi were, where they come from, and what they represented. And they, they weren't just you know, three people who were riding on camels uh, looking at a star. They had a, a very deep history. To, to just run some of those ideas by us. All
1: right. Uh, the, uh, the story of the Magi brings up uh, the story of the star in the East. Uh, the Magi was Zoroastrians. Those were followers of Zarathustra, who lived about 3,000 B.C., I've read uh, Zarathustra, a uh, very deep thinker. By the way, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote a work called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and he tries to take Zarathustra as the new preacher, the new prophet, the, new, the, the sense of the new age. Uh, the Zoroastrian people, the Zoroastrian followers, are named after Zarathustra. When you get to the Star in the East and the Magi, uh, we have astronomical certification that such an event occurred. Uh, there pretty much is no doubt. Uh, there's a very dense German work on—I don't know if you know this picture—every single celestial event from, uh, you know, from the time of uh, the Egyptian pyramids all the way even till about 10 minutes ago. Uh, you know how the uh, the precision that the marks German scholarship,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they have identified. That such event occurred, not only they, but they're usually considered to be the Bible, no pun intended, for astronomical events. This this event in the east, the star that they saw, some say that it wasn't really a star. It was the the two planets uh, reflecting very brightly, although the German uh, scholars say that, in fact, it was a stellar, not celestial event. The Magi, who were Zoroastrians, um, they were from Persia, and the Zoroastrian sacred books were expecting a child who would would be born of a chaste woman that would change the world. Now, before I go on, uh, some would say, well, then uh, the story of the nativity is a takeoff on this Zoroastrian uh, belief. On the contrary, one might say that the uh, this Zoroastrian belief is an indication that the divine was preparing man, mankind and not just the Jewish people for an event such that even hints of it were in the Zoroastrian religion. Did the divine with the Zoroastrian religion prepare for the acceptance of what he had inspired? the Old Testament prophets to write. You see how I turn that around? Mm-hmm. Some people want to say this means that the uh, story of the Magi and the story of the, of the uh, virgin birth was taken from Zoroastra. It may, in fact, have been, contrarily, that the Divine was not only preparing the Hebrew people through inspiration and with exactness, but given a general ambiance to the world that this event was going to occur. And the event that struck the Magi was that the East star had shone with a brilliance, which indicated to them, as you know, they were brilliant. You know this better than I do.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, They were brilliant astronomers. And the people, the wise people of the Eastern world, always studied the stars because they saw that as the power of forces beyond them. So we have here the story of the star in the east, is that a myth? Well, apparently not. It's the story of the Magi, was that, uh, was, that a, uh, was that a myth? Well, the question surfaces again, why would you write about it since the people at that time could in fact find out whether or not this ever occurred? Why do I say this? The Herod's court was inundated with Pharisees. Although he hated the Jewish people, he wanted to be kept abreast of developments in the Jewish religion, because he was a suspicious man. He was a maniac. If you read uh, Josephus, Mm -hmm. uh, you read the accounts of Herod uh, and Pippeter in the uh, Jewish Wars and uh, other writings of Josephus. This man was a very vicious man, but he was always wondering about his power. So there were Pharisees that he would bring in to counsel him upon different movements in the Jewish religion. They were very knowledgeable of this Zoroastrian motif, okay? And we have to remember that the Pharisees hated Herod. And they were of the belief that the Messiah was going to be Jewish, and that he was going to be born of the Jewish people. So they told him, most likely, disregard this nonsense about magi coming from the East looking for this star and this newborn infant. My point being here that um, one could ask the Pharisees, people around that time, did it ever happen in the time of Herod? that these men came to see this newborn babe. It could have been checked out. Otherwise, why would a Gospel writer subject himself to the possibility of being foolish, of having written something that could not be checked out? That's one of the beauties of the Gospels. When you uh, study them and can establish that they were written fairly close to the time of Christ's life, And I, for example, in my book, uh, Divinity of the Birth, have argued that Matthew was written contemporaneous with Christ. Once you're able to write contemporaneously around the time of Christ, you avoid this problem of time allowing mistakes, time allowing stories to have developed. If you can establish that these works were written fairly close to the time of Christ, it becomes evident that you can go to these people that were in Herod's court and ask them, by the way, uh, did Herod, in fact, uh, uh, visit with Magi? Did he ask them to come and tell him about this star in the East that they saw? So what we have is a well-known Zoroastrian motif, and it was well-known by the the Jewish uh, uh, learned. They knew about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is... uh, the, the Magi coming seems to be something that's very valid because there was this star in the east. There was this belief that something was going to happen that was great. The Pharisees and Herod's court knew it, so one can assume that what Luke was writing wasn't a myth. Right. That, in fact, this actually was something that
0: occurred. D- didn't we, uh, at one point, talk about uh, Herod being worried about um, uh, the situation? that The Romans kind of foretold it, and, and he, he was very worried about this in his court, and he f- felt that he had to do something about it. Uh, w- yeah,
1: but that brings up the question, mm. again, uh, of St. Luke, and what's the slaughter of the innocents, uh, is, uh, which Herod uh, undertook? And um one other point about Luke being a historian before we address the heretic, uh some people said that Luke was not accurate because he said in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee and Corinius was Legate of Syria. Well some historians said well Cor was the Legate of Syria after in the early first century and not at the time that Herod ruled Galilee. Mm-hmm. Well, they found out not long ago that this fellow Perinius was legate twice. He was a legate at the time that the star appeared in the east and a legate later on. So he was twice appeared legate of uh, Syria. So that kind of adds again to the uh, fact that Luke was a technical historian trying to be accurate in everything that he set down. Now let's get back to the question of Herod and was he concerned about this. People claim that the slaughter of the holy innocents, where Herod said, well, uh, I want to make certain that this child is not born, Uh, they said that this event never took place. The reason why Herod got angry is because Luke tells us the Magi did not return to him. They went on a separate path back to their home country because an angel came to them and told them, that you are not to go back to see to Herod, but to go back to another by uh, by another route. Uh, this was an insult to Herod, who probably expected that the Magi would just kowtow to him and do whatever he bid them, and tell them, "Well, tell us, tell us where this child is born, so that I too may pay homage
2: to him." Mm-hmm.
1: Well, once the Magi did not come back to him and tell him. where this this babe was, it is written that he went out and had the firstborn under two years of age in the town of Bethlehem slaughtered. Mm -hmm. People said that never happened. There are two events. In the Roman Senate, sometime around 30 B.C., 33 B.C., there was a fear among the senators that uh, there was going to be a new kind of power, a new individual was coming to be. They had heard the rumors, they didn't know where it was from, and they wanted to be on the lookout for such an occurrence. Such an occurrence, they had ordered must be stopped because Caesar is king. So there's a first indication that when you say it must be stopped, we know how the Romans stopped things. They just killed the people that were involved, and that ended the problem. Mm-hmm. But with Herod, Macrobius, in his son Alia writes about the story where Herod's two-year-old child was slaughtered and killed when Herod had ordered his Roman soldiers to kill children because of a fear that he had about a new kind of power coming to be. Now, granted, Macrobius does not say that Herod had the children in Bethlehem slaughtered, but need we ask ourselves, well, why would Macrobius in his Saturnalia be bringing this up if, in fact, Herod never ordered the execution of these children? So again, we have the story of Luke being a historian being backed by the writer Macrobius in his Saturnalia. And that's the story of the Magi, those three wise men, which doesn't seem to me to be some kind of fabrication, but seems to be based in history by a man who said that he was writing down accurately everything that he had been told in good order.
0: Yeah, it, it seems to be there's, uh the, you know, in, in the commonly told stories, and you hear it on, on at Mass on uh, on Christmas Day and when the, the Gospels are read, that once the Magi saw uh, the Christ child, uh, they let off and they, they took off and went in a different direction. But what you're indicating, there was a whole different series of political situations that either they knew about or were inspired about that they had to return to their homeland in a different way.
1: Yes, the, uh, the political situation, well, you have Harry, who was constantly in fear of being overthrown. I mean, uh, he killed his wife, he killed a couple of his children, uh, he killed the high priest, uh, he, uh, I, he killed uh, a number of uh, rulers of other countries, much to the chagrin of Augustus, uh, because uh, there was fevering at this time in the land of Judea, the possibility that Rome could be overthrown, remember the Maccabeans had had prevented the temple from being destroyed. They had fought tooth and nail, and that was that was around two thirty BC. That was still in the minds of the Jewish mm-hmm. people. so uh, herod is is aware of this fevering, this kind of revolutionary sentiment. So he's going to be very, very careful to put out the fire before it starts. Mm -hmm. And Herod, uh, like I said before, uh, you know, after one reads about Herod's life in Suetonius and Josephus and Tacitus uh, and uh, the, uh, the records that we have, the commentary from others at the time, one is aware that Herod was going to hold on to power at all costs. Even to the point of uh, killing his own children if he thought that his power could, would be taken, mm-hmm. and the Jews could not stand Herod, so he was always suspicious of them and always wondering when was the next step going to be taken. You know, at the time actually, let's Herod, let's it hold it sure, there, uh,
0: Robert. Robert, let's hold yeah, it there for a second and, and we'll just take a break here and, uh, actually, uh, we'll continue. I want to bring up something after the break about, uh, you know, Christmas being something of, uh, of a higher level of awareness for womanhood. Uh, we, we talked about that earlier, but right now we're, we're speaking with, uh, Father Robert Geis, a scriptural ec- expert here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigen. You stay right where you are. being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigiani and Richard Serrett is on a well-deserved rest. And uh, this evening we're speaking with Scriptural expert uh, Father Robert Geis, and we've been speaking about uh, the different aspects of Christmas, uh, most of which uh, I guess we've um, basically forgotten about in in the secular world. And we we're sort of revisiting uh, what Christmas is and and the, and the many different scriptural aspects as to how uh, Christmas has um, regained. We hope anyway, some of its meaning. Um, Father Geis, I, I'd like to address the issue of Christmas being an opportunity to raise the awareness of womanhood and, and uh, the, the, how womanhood fits into, into salvation. Um, I know you have some very definite views on that, on that point of view.
1: Uh, yes. Um, uh, apparently you have uh, read my books. Thank you. Um, the role of woman in uh, the eyes of uh, the divine is a very special one to the point that uh, he could have introduced the salvation and the redemption of man in history in many different ways. As we know, man lost the uh, immortality feature of his existence in the Garden of Eden, uh, a result of his wanting to be like God, which the serpent identified as knowing not only about good but also evil, Man lost his deathless state. And God could have uh, introduced redemption in a a variety of ways, but he chose to have it introduced by way of a woman. And that says an enormous amount to the scriptural exegete what uh, the uh, level of womanhood is in the divine plan of humanity. He made a woman be his mother as man. Uh, He did not have to be born uh, in a stable. He did not have to grow like a human being. He could have come once in ten seconds and redeemed man and be gone. But what happened was, is that the divine, it seems to me, in wanting to show the value of womanhood and of woman, decided that his son if I may use that word, decide, had it that his son would be born of woman, which places woman in a premier position in the economy of salvation. And he chose Mary. What is interesting is that not only was it one, it was two-sided. Mary chose virginity as a consecrated life to God. That's already written about in Numbers 30. The Jewish woman who was a virgin consecrating her life to God was protected by certain laws in Scripture in in the book of Numbers, chapter 30. But what we have here is God not only taking woman and placing her in that position as the one responsible for bringing his son into the world, but woman from the other side is allowed to consecrate herself totally to God in the Jewish tradition in the manner of consecrated virginity in, uh, as is described in Numbers 30. You know, some people, when they talk about the virginity of Mary, uh, those who do not believe in miracles and those who believe that this is all a fairy tale, a fancy a way of looking at something that is uh, uh, nice and tender, some people do not realize uh, that the virginity of consecration that Mary took is an absolute choice on her part, as well as God making the same choice of woman for the role that he chose in the Redemptive Act. So My she, so of
0: she of, would have, Robert, she would have uh, decided this well beforehand, is that what you're saying?
1: Uh, well, to God, uh, things are not known beforehand because there's no time in his knowledge. Uh, he, Everything is known simultaneously. Knowledge to him, every event to him is present like the circumference of a circle is present to the center of the circle. He knows everything at the same time. So we may use the term beforehand, uh, in the, but it would be inaccurate. It's better to say, Victor, that eternally he had it so that woman would have this position eternally in his divine providence. I see. That a woman would take this position as being the one responsible for bringing his son into the world. Okay. If that doesn't indicate the level of respect and the value that the divine has for woman, um, perhaps somebody could tell me what else would... Well, I'm not the smartest person in the world, it's just that, to me, shows the value of woman in the economy of salvation. She was print... In other words, let me put it this way, without her... but well, let's take the scene where Gabriel appears to marry... And he, he, he tells her that she is going to be, that she is going to bear the uh, Emmanuel, uh, God, with us. Mary could have refused. Mary could have said, in fact, I think Mary could have said, well, I don't really want to do that. But Mary didn't say that. Mary said she accepted what Gabriel, Gabriel said to her, namely that she would become uh, the mother of Emmanuel, God, with us. And... The point is, is that this was known eternally that woman would have this role in salvation. If you look, incidentally, uh, at the at the way Jesus approached womanhood, he held a woman in very high regard. He treated his mother with absolute respect. Um, if you remember at the, uh, the, the Samaritan woman at the well and the conversation that Jesus has with her, God thought, he, the divine thinks of woman so importantly that Jesus makes it his business to try and indicate to her that she must save her life so that she can have the water of eternal life. Woman was so important to the divine that Christ went out among women and taught them the same thing that he taught men. In other words, he did not just teach the Pharisees, he did not just speak to the average fisherman, he spoke to women. Remember the point where the woman uh, uh, touches the hem of his garment and Christ says, Mm -hmm. Who touched me? What power went out for me? Christ turns to the woman and says to her, she's trembling. She wants her cancerous uh, flow of blood stopped, and he says, "Woman, your faith has saved me." He acts; he has so much compassion that he worked, that he takes a special attention of this woman in need. And there are countless stories in, in, in the New Testament about the value that Christ held for woman. Remember, at the resurrection, the first person he appeared to was a woman, Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. He didn't appear to Peter, he didn't appear to John. So that again indicates the level of concern and value that Christ had for woman in the economy of salvation. That is not really penetrated today. People do not have that view. Uh, you know, you have the woman's lib movement, I'm showing my age, uh, <laughs> those kinds of things, but... Christ already was aware of the value of woman from his own mother, who raised him. Victor, when you are given the woman the role to raise your son, which God gave to Mary, to to care for him, to nurture him, to take care of him, you are entrusting to a woman your son. That, again, points to a value that people have not ascribed to women in the economy of salvation, but which is certainly evident in the way God uh, had Mary take care of his son.
0: We're speaking with Father Robert Geis, a scriptural expert here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigen. You stay right where you are. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard this evening. We're speaking with scriptural expert, Father Robert Geis, and we've been speaking about the different aspects of Christmas. Let's explore the idea of the kind of birth that that Christ endured uh, in, in the stable and I know that uh, you know, the, the kind of birth that any child um, w- w- would have is indicative of the kind of, of um, I guess, journey or role that he or she has to play. But the significance of, of the birth in the stable among animals, I know um, that that is a very strong point in the way, uh, I guess, the Almighty uh, chose to portray the birth of his son. Uh, what is it about the birth in a stable and all that it meant that portrayed the greatness of this individual.
1: Exactly. Here again we come to uh, this story about Christ as being something that one would not expect, if you're right, one would not expect a Hollywood producer to write a story about a a king of the world being born in a stable. Of course, yeah. He should be surrounded by Roman nobility, by Jewish Pharisees, by the power elite. Christ was not he was, he was found in Bethlehem where his parents could not, at the census called by Augustus, Joseph had to go back to Nazareth, as you know, because that was the birthplace, uh, that was his birthplace. They go to Bethlehem looking for room to have this child be born, and they can't find any room. So they are forced to go. This is the Son of God, who is to be born. So they are forced to go into very bad conditions, namely a stable. And how do we know that it's a stable? I noted uh, I had a conversation with you recently where I said the uh, Roman Pope stated that Christ was not born in a stable, which surprised me, because in Luke. Christ says that Mary placed Jesus in a fatane, a fate. That's the mm-hmm. Greek word mm-hmm. for feed trough. Animal feed trough. Again, we get back to the question, who's going to write a story about a great man coming to Earth, going to be the king of everybody, being born in a feed trough, out of which donkeys and cows and horses eat? Not only that, but you have What is remarkable about this is that Christ chose to be surrounded by creatures who are docile, who are are tender, who are always uh, friendly uh, to a human being. He didn't choose to be born around the powerful. And I find that extraordinarily significant to my own way of thinking, that he chose to be born. But remember what I said earlier. He could have been born, he could have been born in any way. Of course, of yeah. He could have executed redemption in any act. Mm-hmm. Instead, he chose to be among the uh, the uh, the uh, beasts of the earth, showing again his respect for that creation. Uh, you have today people who are very animal-friendly and defending animal rights. I agree with much of what they do, Mm -hmm. an awful lot of what they do, and they have an image of this early on in the fact that Christ was born in a stable, as is indicated by that word that I told you that Luke Mm -hmm. uses. But remember, let's go back again, Luke is a historian, he's not writing fiction. What person is going to write about, if you want to convince somebody, that this person who was born is powerful, is important, he's going to change the world, you certainly wouldn't say he was born in a stable. That's right. You would say he was born in the Roman palace, or he was Mm -hmm. born, you know, in Caesarea Philippi, or he was born, on, uh, you know, in one of Herod's palaces. You certainly wouldn't say that he was born in a stable. And concomitant with this is the fact not only was he born in a stable, but there were shepherds. Suddenly real who are gathering around where Jesus is born so that Jesus is born not among the, the rich and the powerful but among shepherds mm-hmm. who have to risk the elements who have to tend constantly to their to their sheep who have to look out for robbers make sure that the, excuse me that nobody steals the, these All animals right. they come. And they come to adore Christ. And what's their reward? They are given the reward of the angels in heaven singing about the birth of this individual. The angels didn't appear to Augustus. They didn't appear to Herod. They didn't appear to Pilate, although he was his procurator at the time. They didn't appear to any great Roman nobility. They appeared to shepherds in the field. Can you imagine the the, the death? Of, of that experience what 's something to treasure for all eternity incredible yeah it's did an not incredible appear story to anybody that was powerful yeah. he didn 't appear to Nicodemus. he That's didn't appear right. to Joseph of arimathea both very powerful Jewish men mm-hmm. he appeared to shepherds in right. the field
0: well we 'll have to hold you there we 've uh, pretty much come to the to the end of our time together uh, father and it 's been a real experience uh, to Sort of uncover some of the, the deeper meanings of this incredibly important feast day and uh, in, in the calendar. I want to thank you for being with us, uh, Father Robert Geis. Uh, we will talk again, and we do wish you best of luck on, your, on the new release of your book. And you. uh, it's, uh, it's it's quite a uh, quite a kudo to you that you've uh, that you've amassed this kind of uh, information and, and are able to publish it. So thank you very much for being with us, Father, and we will talk again.
1: Thank you very much for your courtesy, Victor. Good
0: night. Good night now.
1: Good night.
0: Bye-bye. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani sitting in for Richard Serrett. And don't forget, for upcoming show information, please visit richardserrett.com or say hello to Richard on Twitter at twitter.com. My name is Victor Vigiani. This is The Conspiracy Show. Thank you for joining us.